0: Right now we want to have a, a prayer. We want to come before the Lord and ask Him to bless us um, and to petition the Lord. So I invite you to kneel with me. Let's, let's seek the Lord. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy holy name. Father, we come before you praising You for who and what You are, that You are love. The Bible tells us, gives us these characteristics of You, that we mainly see them, Father, in Your commandments. We see that the commandments is a transcript of love. And the Bible tells us that You are love. And so, Father, we praise You that You're not uh, what the devil portrays You as, some tyrant that's looking to to punish us at every moment, inflict pain upon us for the times that we fall, but that You are a compassionate, long-suffering, merciful God. That You pick us up, dust us off, and teach us. And that through Christ You have forgiven us. So Father, we pray that You would continue to forgive us. Forgive us our sins. Help us, Lord. Fill us with the grace we need to keep looking up. To keep our eyes fixed upon the Savior. To walk with Him. To continue in the light that Jesus shows. And Father, we we bring before You those who are ill. Those who are dealing with uh, recuperating from surgery. We know Sister Twelve Gates is. And and uh, our friend, dear brother Rollin. We're coming as... Tooth extraction. We thank you for being very near to Him. Father, I pray that you will continue to be with each one of your saints. And help us to be the ministers and preach the word as we learned this morning in the best way that we can. Fill us with the, the Holy Spirit. May we discern the gifts we're given and use them to your honor and glory. Father, as I touch upon this subject here, very important subject. Uh, a part of the characteristic of your people is that uh, they're very generous and they are obedient. Revelation chapter 14 verse 12 tells us they keep the commandments of God. And so as I go through this particular subject on tithing and offerings, I pray that you fill me with the Spirit. That you give me the words to speak. That hearts are attuned to your words. And that... We all, we all come in line with the truth. And Father, please, continue to bless us throughout this Sabbath day. Give us a taste of heaven. Send angels that excel in strength and and from on high to be with each of us today. We gain that spiritual rest in the battle against temptation and the devil. We gain that physical rest from all our labors. We gain the blessing. We thank you for hearing this prayer. For we pray it in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the characteristics, as I mentioned just a moment ago, one of the characteristics of God's people, uh, one of the characteristics, let me say, of God, is that He's very generous, isn't He? He's a generous God. And we see that at the cross, friends. We see that in the gift that He's given. He poured all heaven out in Jesus. And it's a shame that we don't recognize it as much as we do, as we should. And so, God has laid out for us certain uh, principles and this is one of the principles we're going to speak to this is one of the characteristics of like I said God's people they're generous because they reflect the character of their savior of God and and so this is a this is something that uh, is a a desire that's put within us when we accept Christ as our lord and savior And I've entitled this particular message, More with Less. And one of the, when you think about it, beloved, one of the most powerful and enduring fictions of human society, I think, is the idea, really, that we can own things. (laughs) A large part of our legal and civil and social system is based on property ownership, and the right to possess what is, quote, ours. You know, we see it in the Constitution. This is, this is something that is very important. But the thing is, we don't really own these things. We've been made stewards of these things, as we'll see. And in this society, our sense of, uh, of uh, uh, self-worth tends to be heavily bound up in how much money we make, isn't it? And what we can afford to buy and own. It's been that way from virtually the, the fall it has. Uh, there Cain, he was very happy and, and uh, his offering wasn't as the Lord directed and he brought all the fruits of his labor as, as he was proud of that, see. And that's carried on through humanity through up to today. We even have phrases like net worth, don't we? which is the dollar value of everything we own minus everything we owe, (laughs) our net worth. How much are you worth? Well, in the grand scheme of things, we're worth all heaven for Christ died for us. That's how valuable we are to God. But that's not how we look at it, is it? How much are you worth? Can it be counted in dollars? And more fundamentally, do any of us really own anything? Of course, legally we can, and we do own things. The law says that if I hold title to a piece of property, then I own it. And I can generally do with it what I wish, because I own it. If I decide to sell it, the money's mine. And I can use it to buy something else, which I will then own, right? So in one sense, it's obvious that we can own things. And yet, civil law itself is simply an agreement among people that that we're going to treat certain things in certain ways, isn't it? We human beings uh, of this society have written laws saying that if I hold a particular uh, um, officially sanctioned piece of paper and it is registered with the government, this gives me an exclusive right to use and benefit from the property or other items described on that piece of paper. Like I own property here, I have a deed, that piece of paper. I have a title to my vehicles, I have that piece of paper. And since almost everyone in our society agrees to abide by the laws giving me that right, well, we all maintain together the persuasion that we own this or that piece of property. We all agree on it, therefore it must be true. And as long as we do generally agree on this this system, it does provide some framework for sorting things out among ourselves, whether uh, it's done justly or unjustly. Isn't that right? However, it's good to keep in mind that this business of possessions and property ownership is not an ultimate reality of the universe. Or a really a God-given right, but simply a human system that we have agreed upon for our own purposes. Because in an ultimate sense, beloved, we really don't own anything. We simply have a limited level of outward control over certain things that we call our own. In Old Testament times, when the Israelites moved into the conquered and conquered, they moved into and conquered the Holy Land, the quote, Holy Land, though it was at times referred to as a possession, it was also carefully pointed out that the land was an inheritance. In other words, a gift from the Lord. The land itself, uh, beloved, could not be sold. Only the use of it could be sold for a certain time period. Every 50 years. Any land that had been, quote, sold was to revert back to the original family whose inheritance it was. And this was referred to as the Jubilee Year. Have you ever heard that before? The Jubilee Year. The Jubilee Year was a reminder, just like the the weekly Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath, that God has created everything. It is also a reminder that humans are not the only owners of the land and are not, according to God, To hold on to property forever. We truly do not own anything as some kind of right. Because we are thankful to God for liberating us. See? We should also liberate others from debt to us. This is what the Jubilee was all about. And as our scripture reading said, David, the psalmist, he, he summed it up there in Psalms 24.1. He said, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. And I believe that this brings us to the reality of the situation beyond all human laws, beyond human agreements, and commonly held fictions. The fact is, none of this is really ours. It is all the Lord's. The Lord God made the entire universe and everything in it, including us. And while we imagine that we own things for a shorter or longer time, God, in fact, owns everything, rules everything, uh, even keeps everything in existence, in existence moment by moment, from eternity to eternity. We don't own Anything. Everything we have is a gift from God. Even the, the freedom to choose is a gift from our Creator. The last time we were together, we looked at the core of the gospel. We found that it was Jesus. He is the core. We discovered that God gave us Jesus and that the law of God was a transcript of His character. We found the righteousness of Christ is the gospel and it is a gift to us. And as we lift Jesus up, we see our need of a Savior, don't we? And as we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're forgiven and our old desires are changed to new ones. We want to lift up Jesus to others. We want to do all things for Christ. And so we recognize that what we are, who we are, what we think we own actually belongs to God. And we want to give all we are and have, you see, to Him who gave all He had to us. That's what we see at the cross, isn't it? We see that God is due our life, our thanksgiving, our praise, our worship and offerings. To those who've come to the cross, to those who've been born again, such things have become the desire of their heart to please God in all things. God gave us something else. God gave us a system of benevolence that is to keep our minds and hearts directed toward Him and the helping of others, thus protecting us from coveting that that thing which is our neighbor's. This system of reminder He calls tithes and offerings, friends. Just as the Sabbath, week to week, we are to remember the Sabbath day. It's a remembrance of our Creator that He is the one who Created us, he's the one who sanctifies us. God gave us this system, this reminder of tithes and offerings. In Leviticus 27 and verse 30, let's read this scripture. And I'll get to some of the questions. Some people believe that this was part of the ceremonial law, the old law. We'll get to that in a moment. But in Leviticus 27, verse 30, the scripture says, and all the tithe of the land. Whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Now this is pretty simple, really. The scripture says that all tithe is the Lord's. That is specific. That's to the point. Then in Malachi 3 and verse 8, we find something added says, will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. And notice that the Lord says, a person who does not tithe is a robber. But in addition, a person who does not give offerings is guilty before God of robbing in too. So our tithes and our offerings belong to God. These things do not belong to us. They belong to God. All material things and money we have belongs to God, and He has made us stewards. When we handle money, we are handling sacred funds. Have you ever thought of it that way? And the question is, how are we handling these sacred funds? (laughs) Could it be that some of us are guilty of misusing God's money? What is tithe? What is tithe? What does that mean? Well, you have your finger there in Leviticus 27. Go down to verse 32. It says, And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. How much? A tenth. We may not have thought of it before, but at least 10% of our income is holy for the Lord. We can't keep it for ourselves without actually breaking the Eighth Commandment and stealing what is not ours because it belongs to the Lord, not to us. So according to the... Tithe principle in this scripture, 10% is to be returned to God as strictly His. The shepherd would separate, uh, uh, back back then, this is speaking of the sheep, the shepherd would separate the young from their mothers, you see, and he would uh, put them in a different fold. And he would open a door of the fold just enough for one animal to pass through. And as each young animal would pass through the door wanting to go to its mother, you see, the shepherd would count them and he would place a mark on every tenth. He had a rod there and he he had what we would call ink. This is how he would mark. And every tenth he would mark as it went through the door, signifying that it belonged to the Lord. It was tithe for the Lord. Now using that principle, if a man earns, let's say, Uh, let's say a person earns $1,000 a month, $100 of that is not really theirs. It belongs to God, and it's to be returned to Him. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22 says, Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth year by year. This means that one-tenth or ten percent, that's what tithe means, a tenth, see one-tenth or 10 percent of all our increase belongs to God. If you work for someone else, then your gross income is your increase. If you're a businessman or employer, only the profit or increase, you see, is subject to the tithe. When I ran my own business, I would tithe on company profits and my own personal wage that was paid. Now, An acquaintance of mine said to me one time that tithing belongs to the Mosaic Law. I alluded to this when we began. He said it's in the Old Testament. Mosaic Law doesn't apply to us in the New Testament. And I, at the time, I'd never heard of that before. So I started to do some research. And I even ran across a few websites on the internet that said that New Testament Christians who tithe are committing sin. Now, I tried to wrap my mind around that. Returning a tenth of your increase to God is sin? (laughs) devil sure has a way, doesn't he? Twisting things. Friends, nowhere will you find this in the Bible. I've searched it out. And as always, I'll encourage you to do the same. Search it out. I believe this is an attack from Satan himself to get Christians to sin by robbing God and also to cripple the spreading of God's last day message by withdrawing support for gospel ministers. The fact is that the practice of tithing predates the time of Moses by hundreds of years. Abraham and Jacob paid tithe long before the days of Moses. Let's look at that. Let's go to Genesis chapter 14. Let's read this. This was the time when there was a coalition of kings who came through Sodom and Gomorrah. They were coming through and they were conquering different peoples and taking them as captives, etc., and they came through and they defeated the king there of Sodom, and they took Lot and his family as captives. And we read about this here. What did Abraham do? It says in Genesis 14 and verse 14. And when Abram Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house. Three hundred and eighteen and pursued them unto Dan. Now, you know, back then, uh, certain coalitions, they may have just a hundred men and go and wreak such havoc. Here, Abraham had 318. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot. Well brother in the spiritual sense, really his nephew, see, and his goods and the women also and the people. So God blessed Abraham in this effort, didn't he? And he was victorious. Shows that Abraham not only was a very wealthy man, that he was a very godly man, but he was also uh, uh, militarily uh, very acute. And through God's blessings, he defeated these kings. Brought all the people back. And all the possessions. Factually, more than what their possessions were, he brought back the spoils. And verse 17, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Keto-Lamor. That word there is very interesting. It means he was a follower of a particular goddess named Lamor. that he was a servant of that goddess. And of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek was. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, tithes of all. Who did he give tithes to? Melchizedek. Who was Melchizedek? He was the priest of the Most High God. And so that Abraham paid tithes shows clearly that this institution was a divinely instituted practice from really earliest of time. By returning to God one-tenth of his income, the believer recognizes God's ownership over all his property, you see. It's not really mine. And so, of all of Abraham's increase there, he gave tithes to Melchizedek, to the church, to the priests of the Most High God. And this was hundreds of years before the Mosaic Law, my friends. It was an obligation before the Jewish race or the ceremonial law had even come really into existence. Just like the Sabbath. God's tithe and offerings is not a type or shadow, and I'm talking about the Seventh-day Sabbath. It's not a type or shadow meant only for the Jews that was fulfilled or done away with at Christ's death there at the cross. Now, there were certain Sabbaths and a certain tithe that were parts of the feast system that did change at the cross, and this has caused some confusion, I believe. I'm going to touch on that a little bit later here. But the Sabbath and tithe of the Lord did not change at the cross. If you read this to you, it's from a book entitled Councils on Stewardship, page sixty seven. Referring to the experience of Abraham and Jacob in paying tithe, notice what it says such was the practice of patriarchs and prophets before the establishment of the Jews as a nation. But when Israel became a distinct people, the Lord gave them definite instruction upon this point. And then she quotes Leviticus twenty seven verse thirty. All the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Not W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, but sacred holy. It says, This law was not to pass away with the ordinances and sacrificial offerings that typified Christ. As long as God has a people upon the earth, his claims upon them will be the same. And friends, we see this. Jesus spoke of this. Matthew 23, in verse 23. This is part of the woes to the Pharisees, you recall. Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Now notice what he says. He says, These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Now that word ought is very interesting. It denotes an obligation. And it immediately creates a moral basis for this doctrine. It is moral because, you see, it involved stealing from God. As we've already read in His Word. It's stealing. You rob God. What's interesting to me, and very dangerous, friends, is that the same people who say that the tithing plan was done away with at the cross, they use a lack of New Testament scriptures as proof for their position. Consider that. A lack of scriptures as proof. When is it, friends, sound biblical principle to use a lack of scripture to substantiate a doctrine? But the New Testament does make mention of the principles of tithes and offerings just as it makes mention of the Sabbath. Now, they aren't mentioned as prevalent as they are you know, in the Old Testament. And so people think that there's been a change, but the Bible is silent about any such change. Now, let me ask you, do you want to base your beliefs upon unscriptural, silent assumptions, or thus saith the Lord? Notice this from a Review and Herald article entitled, Will a Man Rob God? May 16th, 1882. The New Testament does not reenact the law of the tithe as it does not that of the Sabbath. For the validity of both is assumed and their deep spiritual import explained. It is explained, see. The Sabbath Seventh-day Sabbath, the the law of tithes and offerings are not mentioned as much in the New Testament because there there was no controversy concerning whether they were still an obligation or not. So you see, the validity of both is assumed based on the weight of scriptural evidence in its entirety, Old and New Testament. Like I said before, there is no mention of a change, and if the Bible doesn't specifically call for change, then it is still binding. The New Testament doesn't say the Sabbath was changed. Nowhere will you find it in God's Word. The same with tithes and offerings. That's why the validity of both is assumed. So what is the Lord's tithe money? This tenth, the tenth of our increase. What's it to be used for? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 13, he says, Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? What's Paul referring to here? What's he saying? Well, Paul's referring to the Levites of the Old Testament and how they received a livelihood for their work of ministry at the ancient altar in the sanctuary but let's look at the very next verse, verse 14. He says, "...even so hath the Lord ordained..." That's important. "...the Lord has ordained this, that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel." What What does he mean by that? He begins by referring to the Levites in the Old Testament and how they were sustained, and he says... Those who preach the gospel are to live in the gospel. What's he mean? Well, this text teaches that the gospel minister is to be supported exactly the same way as the Levites of the Old Testament. Now let's compare this to Numbers 18 and verse 21. And behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tenth in Israel for an inheritance for their service which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Paul saying that who, those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. He was referring to the Levites, and we read here in Numbers eighteen twenty one that they were given an inheritance. See, their inheritance was a tenth of all Israel. That's very interesting. What's a tenth? Oh, that's a tithe, isn't it? The tribe of Levi was not given any inheritance when they came into the land of province as other Israelites were. They had no herds. They had no land as a tribe. All the other tribes would pay tithe and that one-tenth was used to pay those who were charged with the service of the tabernacle, the Levites. Paul said, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So, the tithe is not to be used, beloved, for a church education fund. It's not to be used for a church expense fund. It's not to be used to purchase literature or books. Some people are mixed up about that. It's not to be used even for a poor fund. I'll get to that in a moment. It is ordained of God only to pay heaven called ministers of the gospel. This is the biblical way for ministers to be supported. And I must tell you that you are responsible for what your tithe is used for, even once you've paid it. And what I mean by that is, if a minister of the gospel is misusing it, you need to be aware of that. <laughs> See? So you cannot blindly pay tithe to a church or a ministry who misuses it on such things as The stock market, or attorney's fees for taking believers to court, or building repairs. It is solely to sustain the ministers of the gospel. That's what God has ordained. We see in the world, we look around different denominations, some churches resort to fairs or lotteries or bingo, etc., to meet their financial obligations. And I have to ask you, is that the plan of God? Is this the way He had ordained for churches to meet the deficit in their budgets? No, beloved. Any church that reverts to such things shows that their spiritual condition is far below what God would have it. God's Word says, A tithe of all our increase is the Lord's. He has reserved it to Himself to be used for religious purposes. It is holy. Nothing less than this has He accepted in any time period, Old or New Testament. And a neglect or postponement of this duty will provoke His displeasure. In fact, the Bible says that God will curse those who neglect this duty. Malachi 3. You're cursed with a curse. I have to tell you, friends, if all professed Christians would faithfully bring their tithes and offerings to God, His treasury would be overflowing. Churches would have no reason to resort to fairs and lotteries or parties of pleasure, to extort means, essentially, from worldlings for the support of the gospel. In my mind, something's desperately wrong. wrong with a, a a church that has to bring the world into its operating plan. I'll tell you, if, if Christ should walk into some of these temples and cathedrals of our day, wouldn't He be just as in, indignant as He was in the days of old? Wouldn't He say, take these things hence? You've made my house a prayer, a den of thieves? Something else to remember. God never intended for ministers to dabble in some side business. A man called of God should give his whole time to the Word of God. His livelihood should be supplied by the divine plan of the tithing system. But you know, because this isn't held as sacred by many people in the church, too many ministers are suffering because of their covetousness. And they're pulled away from their duties because they have to earn enough income elsewhere to support their, their church and their family. And I know that God's not pleased by the disrespect shown to Him by stealing what is rightfully His and leaving these faithful workers to go without or work on the side just to make ends meet. Some people complain that they can't pay their tithe because there's nothing left after all the bills are paid. But yeah, are we, are we doing the right thing by waiting until everything else is paid before we give God what's His? In Proverbs three verse nine, we read, "Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the firstfruits of all thine increase." That means we pay tithe first before any of the bills. If you're self-employed, you'd pay tithe on your profits, like I said after the overhead's been paid. That's essentially your paycheck. If you work for someone else, then your paycheck is your increase. Don't confuse the two friends. Even ministers are to pay one-tenth of their salary, although they are paid from the tithe fund themselves. After all, everything belongs to God, doesn't it? All the silver and gold and cattle in a thousand hills were simply stewards of these things. He has let us use them. Isn't that true? Some people say they pay tithe when they really mean, what they really mean is that they, they give offerings. Because I'll tell you, friends, nobody is a tithe payer who does not give one-tenth of their increase. One-tenth of their income. Tithe means one-tenth. means ten percent. And that's what the Bible is speaking of. One-tenth or ten percent of a person's increase. Now there was a question, I think a few weeks ago, somebody alluded to this, and I want to touch on this, because because some have expressed this to me before, that the tithe can be used for the poor and the widow instead of the minister. And what they're referring to is Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 and 29. I want to read that to you, and hopefully clear this up says at the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all the tithe of thine increase the same year and shall lay it up within thy gates. And the Levite, because he hath no part nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow which are within thy gates, shall come and shall eat and be satisfied that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hand which thou doest. Now let me summarize what this is saying. The Lord had commanded that every third year a tithe or a tenth be raised for the benefit of the poor, the fatherless, and the widow and and the Levite as well. But this was a tithe in addition to and entirely distinct from that given for the services of God in supporting the Levites. Every third year this second tithe and if you, you, you know, study some of the um, Jewish history, you see that they still do this today. Um, every third year, this second tithe, they'll call it the second tithe, the second 10%, was to be used in entertaining the Levite and the poor. As Moses said, that they may eat within thy gates and be filled. The first tithe was strictly for the support of the priests and Levites. The second tithe provided for a table... You know, provided with food and, and everything. It was a feast for, uh, um, that was provided by God for the orphans, the poor, widows, and for strangers within the land even. And the Levites were eligible to partake of all such feasts as well because they didn't have an inheritance. And the Apostle James actually expressed the same principle for the Christian church when he said in James one twenty seven, pure religion and defiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So there are, beloved, there are there are two distinct tithes spoken of in the Bible. One collected every third year for the poor, the fatherless, and the widows. You see, now why would they do that? Well, it tended to keep fresh before the people the truth that God owns everything. And not just that but that God can use them to be channels to others of His blessings. And we would call that offerings. Now, this is the tithe that was a part of the feast system, you see which was fulfilled by Christ at Calvary. We're no longer required to give this second tithe to have these feasts just to the poor, the fathers, the widows, and, and the ministers. And like I said, but instead what we do, we collect free will offerings for the poor and the needy. You know, and we have a brotherly love fund. See? Now the other tithe spoken of is the Lord's tithe, which is still a requirement um, for all today. I've had some tell me that they just couldn't afford to give 10% of their income to the Lord. And I've said to them, you cannot afford not to. But for those of like mind, I want you to consider this. Suppose somebody came to you and said, I'd like to set you up in business. I'd like to furnish the money the buildings, the equipment, everything, even your training I'll even uh, educate you in further educational you know seminars, etc, and I want you to run this business. then at the close of the month, I want you to figure up the profit, and when you found the profit, I want you to keep ninety percent of it and give me ten percent. Would you say? Gee, you mean you want a whole 10%? (laughs) (laughs) They've given you all of it, put you in charge of it, and want you to keep 90% of the profit? You see, you've never heard of an offer like that before because it comes from God. (laughs) Human beings wouldn't do that. I think you, you'd look at that person and you'd say, I think you made a mistake, haven't you? You mean you want 90% and you'll give me 10%. But you see, that's the offer that God has made to each one of us. Because this world and everything in it belongs to God. He made the whole thing and everything here is His. That was our scripture reading. Psalms 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. In Haggai 2, and verse 8, we read, The silver is mine, this is the Lord speaking, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. We forget that sometimes. But he says, it is mine. Now notice Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. So friends, when we add this all up, we put it together, the Bible simply saying everything is God's. If you have anything at all, God gave you the power and the strength, the intelligence to obtain what you have. And when he says to you that all he wants is 10% of his own, is that a fair offer? I don't think you've ever heard a more fair and generous offer anywhere. It's incredible. And the other thing is, God can stretch that 90% to go further. He'll multiply it and bless that 90% because of your faithfulness. He'll, He'll further that than you can do by keeping all 100%. I've experienced it. My wife and I have experienced it over and over It's incredible. So I said, we work on addition, God works on multiplication. Now, you may ask, just where am I to give this tithe that belongs to God? If we go back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, he says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house. He's talking about his storehouse. What is the storehouse of God? The storehouse, essentially, is the house of the Lord. It's the church. Or more accurately, it's the gospel ministry, friends. In 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verses 11 and 12, it says, Then Hezekiah commanded to prepare chambers in the house of the Lord... And they prepared them and brought in the offerings and the tithes and the dedicated things faithfully over which Kananiah the Levite was ruler. This is just an example, one example. You see, God's ideal, we see here God's ideal, is that the people brought their tithe to the local church where it was dispersed to those who ministered the true gospel. It's very interesting I talk about this subject the the questions that come up Uh, some have asked about passing the collection plate during church and whether that's appropriate and I think it's a good question because you you find that in a number of the churches today that this plate is passed Um, and and it's a good question some some people think well that was brought in by the Catholics and, and it's wrong well what's the Bible say? well let's think about this before the sanctuary system, before it was set up, the head of each household was responsible for building a family altar to the Lord and bringing their offerings to that altar in an act of worship. I mean, we see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the story of Cain and Abel, as well as Abraham. We see it in Jacob as well. And so, what do we learn from that? Well, we learn that giving offerings to God is sacred. It's a form of worship. And in a similar way, in most Christian services, the collection plate is brought forward to the altar as an act of worship. I cannot find anything in the Bible that speaks to the passing of a collection plate during worship, but that doesn't mean that it's improper. I do find a snippet in in the writings of Ellen White where she mentions dropping coins in the offering plate during church, so I cannot really, with inspired authority, condemn doing such a thing as passing an offering plate. Now, there are a few Bible examples of having an offering chest at the temple to collect offerings. We look at Second Kings chapter 12 and verse 9. It says, But Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one cometh into the house of the Lord; and the priests that kept the door put therein all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, so they had a chest that they would put the offerings into a little more detail of that is given in second chronicles chapter twenty four We read verses eight to ten, and at the king's commandment, they made a chest and set it without at the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation through Judah and Jerusalem to bring into the Lord the collection that Moses the servant of God laid upon Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought in and cast into the chest until they had made an end. And so they had this chest. that they had a hole in, and people would would do that. And the same type of practice is seen in the temple during Christ's day. Jesus spoke of it. If we look at Mark 12, in verse 41, And Jesus sat over against the treasury, and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Now the treasury uh, uh, spoken of here was the collection area for offerings. These chests that they had, and they had a number of chests that, that sat there, they were referred to as trumpets or horns because of their shape. They had a small opening at the top, and it was large at the bottom, you see. And they were located in the the court of the women. That's where they put them. Women could not go any further into the temple than, than that point, you see. So they placed these collection trumpets where all worshippers could have access. Now, if you do and look up a little history, according to tradition, Edersheim says of these, they were 13 chests there, this is what he says of them. Specifically, trumpets 1 and 2 were appropriated to the half-shekel temple tribute of the current and of the past year. Into trumpet 3, those women who had to bring turtle doves for a burnt and a sin offering dropped their equivalent in money which was daily taken out, and a corresponding number of turtle doves offered. Trumpet 4 similarly received the value of the offerings of young pigeons. In Trumpet 5, contributions for the wood used in the temple. In Trumpet 6, for the incense. And in Trumpet 7, for the golden vessels for the ministry were deposited. If a man had put aside a certain sum for a sin offering, and any money was left over after its purchase, it was cast into Trumpet (laughs) 8. See? Similarly, trumpets 9 through 12 and 13 were destined for what was left over from trespass offerings, offerings of birds, the offering of the Nazarite, of the cleansed leper, and voluntary, voluntary offerings. There was also a special treasury chamber into which at certain times they carried the contents of the 13 chests, and besides what was called a chamber of the silent where devout persons secretly deposited money. Afterwards, secretly employed for educating children of the pious poor. Now, if you do a little research about the temple treasury, you'll see how complicated the the priests had made the giving of offerings, and how it had become more of a business than an act of worship. It's from uh, Bible History by Eiderschein. But you can find it in most any Bible history book. They made they took away a sense the sense of the act of worship, you see, and they made it more of a business, and that's why Jesus cleansed the temple of the money changers, see? People who were exchanging currency from all nations into the temple currency. They were doing that in the temple. Now our church decided to stop passing a collection plate, and we have a tithe and offering box. Located at the entrance of the church like the, you know, the trumpets were in the court of the women. And like the widow, anyone can give their tithe and offering without notice of anyone else, but still in the presence of God, see. And as I see it, each church really is entitled to make their own decision on how to collect tithe and offering as long as it's done in a way that is approved of God. One of the things about the, the trumpets there that you'll notice is that money was directed to specific ministry objects. And that's why we have you know, we have a tithe and offering slip, and it has like a church fund, it has a building fund, it has a, a brotherly love fund, you know, evangelism, literature, different things like that. So if the Holy Spirit moves you to give in a particular area, we also have a blank where you can write in what you want it for. We may, at time to time, pick up special offerings. Now, you know, if you're not a member of a local church or your church is misusing the tithe they receive, friends, you're still under obligation to tithe. But you must pray and ask the Lord to direct your path to a church or ministry or minister of the gospel that is deemed worthy. You don't just keep giving tithe and offerings into a a church that's misusing or maybe teaching error, etc., And if you can't find a place directly, keep putting up your tithe until you do. Essentially, friends, the storehouse is basically all those who are true ministers in the gospel field. Pastors, evangelists, Bible teachers, uh, biblical medical missionaries. Pretty much sums it up there. Let me read to you some quotes here. Review and Herald, May 9, 1893. This fund should not in any case be devoted to any other use, speaking of the tithe. It is to be devoted solely to support the ministry of the gospel. After the tithe is set apart, let gifts and offerings be apportioned as God hath prospered you. It's just to the support of the ministry of the gospel. Here's another one, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, page 248. One reasons that the tithe may be applied to school purposes. Still others reason that canvassers and coal porters should be supported from tithe. But a great mistake is made when the tithe is drawn from the object for which it is to be used, the support of the ministers. There you go, friends, right in line with Scripture. And I'm going to tell you that this matter, it's a matter that has eternal consequences. Beloved. Let me read to you from Our High Calling, page 192. The neglect to confess Christ in your account books, the speaking of tithes and offerings, in your account books, cuts you off from the great privilege of having your name registered in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because what are you doing? You are robbing God. You are breaking the commandments. And I will, I'll I'll tell you this, don't get caught in the deception that a particular denomination is necessarily God's storehouse. Because they must be in line with all ten of His commandments, which includes the fourth, doesn't it? And, not just that, dispersing the means as God has directed. If they're not doing that, Friends, I have to encourage you not to support their sin by giving them the Lord's tithes and offerings. Remember the text, Leviticus 27, verse 30, that says the tithe is the Lord's? It's the Lord's. It isn't a question of our deciding whether we ought to turn it over to Him, whether it should become His or will become His. It already is the Lord's. The tithe is the Lord's. And so one-tenth of every man's income belongs to God. He may be a a complete heathen and know nothing of our God, but still one-tenth of his increase belongs to, to the God of heaven. You see what I'm saying? He may not recognize it at the time. That's why, early on in my Christian walk, when I recognized it, I figured up what I had earned, the best that I could, and I began to pay back tithe of what I owed God. I would encourage you to prayerfully consider that as well. The command to give a tenth of all our increase as well as free will will, um, uh, offerings is God's remedy, you see, friends, for covetousness. The root reason for breaking this biblical law is selfishness. It helps to build trust in God. And friends, taste and see that the Lord is good. He'll work on multiplication with you. If you're doing it by yourself, keeping a hundred percent, you're going to be working on addition. God can't help you multiply blessings. In fact, as Malachi said, there's a curse assigned to it. It becomes selfishness. And the off, op- what's the opposite of of self? It's love, isn't it? And all obedience should be based on loving God more than ourselves. Isn't that true? What does love mean? Love means giving. As we learn from John 3.16. For God so loved that He gave. Now, we could never match the love gift of God in surrendering His Son, but we should love Him enough that the surrender of just 10% and offerings of all we possess, should not be counted as a sacrifice. God's challenge in Malachi 3, to prove me concerning tithes and offerings, has always produced the same results in those who took Him at His word. The promise is literal, that there shall not be room enough to receive the blessing as it returns to us. When we rob God, we are in reality robbing ourselves, aren't we? we lose the blessings that are part of the package called obedience. I'm telling you, friends. Unbelievable promises of protection and prosperity are made to those who go into partnership with God through faithful giving. Prove me, says the owner of everything. He said prove me on it. Notice this, from Testimonies to the Church, Volume 3, page 404. Our Heavenly Father did not originate the plan of systematic benevolence to enrich Himself, but to be a great blessing to man. Notice this. She says, He saw that this system of benevolence was just what man needed. It's just what we need. Everything we have and everything we are, everything we have experienced, learned, or felt has been a gift from God. As the Apostle John said, and of His fullness have all we received and grace for grace. We have all received blessing after blessing, friends. We have received more by giving and this is a great lesson. Not only for us, but also for the world. God blesses those who obey Him. He blesses those who do not rob from Him by providing more for us who have less. And I can say that I've been able to do more with less the less that I have than I could have done with it all. I've done more with 85% than I've done with 100%. God can stretch what we have better than we can ourselves. And He wants to do it. It's remarkable, really. We sacrifice and can feel it, but we are overjoyed to do it. What about you? Are you stressed out about your finances, your debts, your costs? Have you been faithful to God or have you been a thief by robbing from Him? Now's the time to turn from your ways. Now's the time to seek forgiveness and begin returning to God what is His. Beloved, will you dare to put away covetousness right now by making a covenant with God to be an honest steward in both tithes and offerings? And be an honest steward in your time by keeping the Sabbath holy? If so, you'll experience the amazing miracle of doing more with less. Friends, God has said it. God has promised. Just believe Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank You so much for this holy Sabbath day that we can come apart and give You our time that we can gain instruction on how to be more loving, how to be obedient, how to be more giving. We notice that in this system of tithes and offerings that it's something that we needed to keep us from selfishness, to make us more like Thee. So, Father, as we, we contemplate these things, maybe some people have not heard this before, I pray that You will bless them with knowledge. Help them to have understanding. Fill their hearts with benevolence and generosity. For You are the example. Help us to be more like You. Please continue to be with us throughout this Sabbath day that we may gain that taste of heaven by being in Your presence. And thank you for this system that keeps us in the family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.